Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us, a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein, and today is episode 159. It's titled, What You Need to Know About Volatility. Ten years ago, Nassim Nicholas Taleb published a book that changed my life. It was titled, The Black Swan, The Impact of the Highly Improbable. At the time, I wrote on my personal blog that the book elegantly and systematically makes the case for why my chosen profession as an investment manager is based on a great intellectual fraud. The fraud is the bell curve, or what we also call the normal distribution. And as it applies to modern finance, the leap of faith that we take that expected return for asset classes can be neatly plotted around an average with a precise measurement of variability or volatility or risk denoted by the standard deviation. All the while, we ignore the fat tails or black swans, as he calls them, unpredictable, rare and extreme events that not only skew the average, but make the concept of average meaningless because the black swan changes the game entirely. As an investment advisor, we would do asset allocations that were based on this bell curve where we had an expected return kind of in the middle. And then we had a range of expected returns as measured by standard deviations, sort of that the, the outcomes that could be outside of the expectation. But we sort of ignored these fat tails, these extreme events, which happen way more often than, than the modern portfolio theory predicts. I go on in my, in my blog. After the fact, when we have one of these outside extreme events, we create narratives to explain why the extreme event took place so that we can watch out and protect ourselves from such unpleasantness in the future. Unfortunately, the next black swan is usually something that wasn't even on the radar. We don't know what we don't know. Keep in mind, I'm writing this in 2007 before there was any inkling of the, the, the severity of the great financial crisis that was just coming months down the road. I go on, much of what Taleb writes, I've learned the hard way over the past decade. I used to think certain investment managers and corporate leaders were smarter than everyone else, only to find that they too had no clue and were buffeted by the unexpected. Now I manage money by refusing to put faith in experts, keeping costs low, maintaining extreme diversification in order to avoid company-level black swans, and staying humble. It's called winning by not losing. And I go, and I continue. And yet, what I find disturbing about the book is not just its ramifications for investing, but the theory the black swans have played, or the role the black swans have played in my life to date, and the significant impact they will have on my future. So often we look back and create narratives for our lives. We selectively remember things while conveniently forgetting others. We attribute too much of our success to our own skill and not enough to the kindness of others or just to plain luck. In my case, I have too much vested in my plan A, my systematic vision of an early retirement in 10 years. So this is 2007, 2017, I was planning on retiring in order to spend more time traveling and doing good. I need to focus more on plan B and plan C, the plans that recognize the existence of black swans and that the steady trajectory I have forecast for plan A will not likely be as smooth and upward trending as I anticipated. Didn't realize the stock market was going to fall 50%. 
within the next year or so. In fact, Talib would recommend throwing out plans entirely since we have no ability to predict the future. I then concluded, at this point, I have no conclusions. I plan to reread the book while in France next week. I then left for 10 days to France and Amsterdam with my nine-year-old daughter, Brianna, carrying with me a hard copy, hardback copy of The Black Swan. And amidst the museums, castles, and poppies on, on the beaches of Normandy, I thought about that book and what I could do to implement the principles it taught. It, it really shook me because I hadn't, I had inklings of seeing the world that way, but reading Taleb's book was the first time I saw it, it put into writing. That the world is not this machine or the economy is not this machine that can be controlled by anyone and that it is radically unpredictable like we talked about in last week's episode. In the book's introduction, Taleb wrote, So I disagree with the followers of Marx and those of Adam Smith. The reasons free markets work is because they allow people to be lucky, thanks to aggressive trial and error, not by giving rewards or incentives for skill. The strategy is then to tinker as much as possible and try to collect as many black swans opportunities as possible. To tinker, to experiment, to try different things, to see what works. Now, obviously, we we have to have some skill. We have to have some skills to be able to, to perform, but just because we have skill doesn't mean we're necessarily going to have the outcome we want. There's always surprises. And Talib doesn't mince words. He's direct. In fact, he can come across as a bit arrogant or haughty. But I, I read and I pondered his words, and his next book, Anti-Fragile, was even better, and we've done some episodes on that. So I started thinking, I'm in France, I'm tinkering, what can I do from an investment standpoint to take advantage of these black swans? And one of the things I did is I bought some options on the VIX volatility index. It was priced at around 13. Earlier that year, it had been around 10. So what what is this VIX volatility index? In The Economist, the the printed edition from May 20th, 2017, it's also online, the Buttonwood column. This is is sort of a a weekly finance column. He describes, he says, the value of VIX relates to the cost of insuring against asset price movements via the options market. An option gives the purchaser the right, but not the obligation to buy or sell an asset at a given price before a given date. So if you're going to buy, you're buying a call, and if you're going to sell, you're buying a put. And that gives you the right to, to, to buy an asset at a given price before a given date, but you don't have to. In return, like anyone buying insurance, because options are a form of insurance and optionality, and Talib talks about that in The Black Swan and Anti-Fragile, options or optionality, this ability to take an action but not an obligation to do, do so. It's a form of insurance. And Buttonwood goes on to say, anyone buying insurance, the purchaser pays a premium. And the price of this premium is set by supply and demand, reflecting the views of the purchaser and the person who sells or writes the option. When you buy an option, you're buying it, but somebody is selling it to you. And so it's just like a stock exchange. You have individuals on both sides 
of of the trade. And so then it's a question, well, what determines the price? Certainly supply and demand, but there's some other factors in terms of the you have the price set by by buyers and sellers, and then you have the the contrived price or the price or the theoretical price based on on pricing options models. And one of those components in pricing options models is volatility. Buttonwood goes on. Volatility is also very important. If an asset is doubling and having in price every other day, an option is much more likely to be exercised than if its price barely moves from one trading session to the next. No one knows what future volatility will be. But if investors are keen to insure against rapid market movements, then premiums will rise. This implied volatility is the number captured by the VIX. Implied volatility. What is the volatility that are priced in the options? Specifically for VIX, it's the S&P 500 index. So options that give an investor a right to buy the S&P 500 at a certain price. And the S&P 500 is a benchmark or index that measures U.S. large company stocks. So if investors believe the volatility of S&P 500 is going to be rising in the future, then the price of options goes up. And you can back in to this implied volatility number or VIX. And the VIX is really, its price is a measure of standard deviation or this range of returns around an expected average. My experiment worked out very, very well. As by year-end 2007, I bought when the VIX was at 13. By year-end, it was close to 20 as the initial signs of the great financial crisis were evident. And I talked about this a couple of weeks ago in terms of signs of the next financial crisis. I think, I think it was episode 159, so 156 or 157. Uh, some podcasters can re- remember the number of every single episode. I just can't do it. I, I know I talked about it. And we talked about sort of that summer of 2007, August, some of the first inklings of the financial crisis, where, and especially as it relates to commercial paper. I bought in May. So my timing was good. Unfortunately, it wasn't because I felt smart because I had made this healthy profit. But the reality, I was lucky. I didn't have any foresight that implied volatility would rise. I just didn't. I didn't have any answer. I bought it. And I bought it for a, a reason that Christopher Cole, he's the founder of Artemis Capital Management. He's an, that's an investment firm, hedge fund, that generates return for market volatility. They basically invest in and around volatility. And he was on a podcast. It's called Grant's Podcast. It's by Jim Grant of Grant's Interest Rate Observer. This is an institutional newsletter that I used to subscribe to as an investment advisor. It's well over $1,000, so I haven't quite subscribed. But they have a brand new podcast, and it is my favorite podcast right now as it, it, it gives you an insight into the institutional world. And they interviewed Christopher Cole. Here's what he said that completely counteracts my theory of why I bought VIX. Cole said, low volatility is not a good reason for volatility to increase. Let me read that again. Low volatility is not a good reason for volatility to increase. When I purchased an option on VIX, that was my thesis. Implied volatility is low, so it only has one way to go, and that is up. That's what happened. But actually, that is not what typically happens. Cole explains, volatility tends to cluster. 
Low volatility tends to predict low volatility. And high volatility tends to predict high volatility. We talk about that as an airplane flying around. You hit a period of turbulence on an airplane, they tend to cluster and lump together. And that is sort of how financial markets work. Now, that's not what's assumed with modern portfolio theory. A normal distribution does not assume clustering and clumping, but that is, in fact, is what happens. And so I just assumed, in fact, what I should have done, and Cole mentions this, I should have actually sold short volatility. In other words, expect the low volatility to continue because low volatility is typically followed by low volatility and high volatility by high volatility. That's what the clustering is. The more important question is what would cause volatility to increase? What are the signs? And that's what I should have been looking for. He goes, he goes on, and I'm quoting from the podcast, volatility is the brother of credit. And volatility is driven by regime shifts in the credit cycle. And if we just think about fundamentally what volatility is, volatility derives from an option on shareholder equity, right? We talked about that. So volatility, you buy options. The VIX is the implied volatility priced into the options on the SP 500, which is stocks. So he says vol, vol is derived from an option on shareholder equity. But equity itself can be thought of as a perpetual option on the future success of a company. So when times are good and credit is easy, a company can rely on the extension of very cheap debt rather than equity to support its operations. And as a result of that, cheap credit makes the value of equity less volatile. Simple enough. It's just very simple. A regime shift in volatility is caused by a tightening of credit conditions. So if, if companies are not able to borrow as readily, that that infuses their or injects higher volatility into their stock prices because it injects higher volatility in their company. Will they be able to roll over the debt? Will they be able to access the capital markets, the debt markets in order to invest in new projects that will increase profitability? And so it's the tightening of credit conditions. And we can observe that by looking at the incremental yield investors demand to hold corporate bonds relative to government bonds. This is this is spreads. These are what are called credit spreads. So we're looking at the yield on investment grade bonds and we're backing out the yield on government bonds. And so that you see that spread and and when that spread wide gets wider, volatility tends to increase. It's a very high correlation between non-investment grade bond spreads and volatility. They, they, you can look at a chart and they go up and down about the same. And so unless credit conditions are deteriorating, it's hard to, to justify that volatility will increase. Tim Hayes, he's chief global investment strategist at Ned Davis Research, put it this way. He says, in most cases, lightning doesn't strike from a blue sky. More often, deteriorating fundamentals lead to a gradual transition from risk appetite to risk aversion. The fear of lightning is more rational when storm clouds are already darkening the sky. So fear, VIX, implied volatility increasing happens when there are actually things happening in the economy that suggest volatility will be increasing. And the primary one is, is credit conditions tightening. And you can see that in spreads.
Before we continue with this discussion on volatility, let me share some words from this week's sponsor. What do companies like Ring, Hint, and Tecovas all have in common? They all use NetSuite to accelerate their growth. Successful companies know that in order to grow faster, you must have the right tools. Whether you're doing a million, 10 million, or hundreds of millions in revenue, NetSuite by Oracle gives you the tools you need to accelerate your growth. With NetSuite, you get a full picture of your business, finance, inventory, HR, customers, and more. It's everything you need to grow all in one place, right from your phone or computer. NetSuite will give you the visibility and control you need to make the right decisions and grow with confidence. That's why NetSuite customers grow faster than the S&P 500. NetSuite is the world's number one cloud business system, trusted by more than 19,000 companies. It's the last system you'll ever need. Schedule your free product tour right now and receive your free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits, at netsuite.com slash david. That's netsuite.com slash david, netsuite.com slash david. So the signs of a regime change in terms of volatility is widening credit spreads because Credit spreads, such as for non-investment-grade bonds, are highly correlated with higher volatility of stocks and bonds. And so if you're looking to buy volatility, VIX, options on VIX, you want to look for, are there signs that credit spreads are widening and that credit is tightening? But interestingly, the three lowest periods of volatility, the three periods of lowest volatility in the last 25 years, so from 1993 to 1996, 2005 to 2007, when I bought options on VIX at the end of 2007 or in May 2007, and today, they've all come when the Federal Reserve was tightening by raising its short-term policy rate. Other periods of low realized volatility, such as 1964 to 67 and in 1952, all coincided with the Federal Reserve raising interest rates. And this is data from Ned Davis Research. This makes sense. As the Fed usually raises its policy rate when the economy is improving and companies are able to readily borrow and access the credit markets. Only when interest rates get too high, the economy begins to slow and bank and investors are less willing to lend, does volatility increase. And you start to see that in widening credit spreads. So last week, we talked about how every crisis is different. And I quoted from the end of theory, Richard And there's an example of this with volatility because there's something really fascinating occurring with volatility or implied volatility VIX right now. Here Here was one of the quotes I read from Bookstaber. He said, we cannot enumerate the states of nature that will arise, much less assign them probabilities. Thus, the world is different for each new crisis, different markets, financial instruments, crowded strategies, views, concerns, context. So even as we look to our past experience for context, We look to the inaccessibility of future experience for uncertainty. Christopher Cole, in his podcast interview, pointed out something really fascinating. What is different this time in terms of this regime? And he pointed out that back in the 90s and and 2000s, pension returns, and I did this, I was a pension consultant, we would estimate as we would do these asset allocation studies, 
of 7 to 9%. That was the actuarial rate of return needed to support the pension. That was the expected return. And you could often get that from bonds. I had one pension manager, well, not pension manager, I had one pension plan that I worked with. They had bought a stable value, a GIC, a guaranteed investment contract back in the 80s. It was yielding 16%. And they held it. It was like a 20-year yield of 16%. But now we're in a situation with bonds, yields are very, very low. And Cole points out that the shorting of volatility. So what does it mean when you short volatility? You sell volatility. Well, you're taking the other side of the VIX trade. So when you buy VIX, you're expecting volatility to to increase. And if it does increase, you make money. If you sell volatility, you're basically writing the option. And so you're just collecting that insurance premium and hoping that volatility doesn't spike. So it's an income strategy. And Cole points out that the returns you can get from shorting volatility, selling volatility is higher than you can get in investing in non-investment grade bonds and other fixed income instruments. So you have institutions, as he says, desperately thirsting for yield, and they've turned to shorting volatility as a fixed income alternative. So institutions are doing it. There's mutual funds that that short, short volatility, they sell volatility. There's ETFs. He says, we've not learned anything since 1987 because, and, and Talib in this book, The Black Swan, because there's one analogy I thought of, he says selling volatility or other examples like that is like picking up nickels in front of a steamroller. It looks very conservative investment until we get a spike. On the other hand, selling volatility is a very rational thing to do right now when you have the VIX is currently, so spot VIX is 10.9, still very, very low. And and so because VIX volatility tends to cluster, right now, if you're writing volatility, you're selling volatility, you can expect, to earn, you would expect to earn a premium because we've not seen a regime change. Now, here's the thing if you're buying volatility or selling volatility, because when you don't buy, when often when we think of the VIX, that's the price today. But the options are actually based on what the market thinks the VIX will be 30 days from now. And so when you're buying, there's something called the VIX future curve. So for example, let's say I wanted to, I think volatility is going to increase, that there's going to be a regime change. And I want to go out and I want to buy VIX, a VIX option that expires in December. And as I mentioned, the spot VIX today is 10.9. So, geez, I think volatility will be higher than that. But no, the the price of a VIX for December option contract is 16.3. And so VIX needs to close or the 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 expectation for VIX in December, all right? December is when the the option expires. The VIX expectation 30 days from then, so in January, needs to be above 16.3. It's not the spot VIX. It's always looking out 30 days. And so there's an upward sloping curve, upward sloping VIX curve. And so whenever you're trying to go long by volatility or essentially benefit if volatility increases, you got to look at that curve because it has to 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 close in the money. It's got to be above that future level, which is, in this case, 16.3. 
And the other thing is, is the price of VIX or the price or the implied volatility, there's a connection between that and actual realized volatility. Volatility right now, volatility May 8th went fell below 10 for the VIX. But realized volatility, the actual volatility, looking at the standard deviation of daily returns for the S&P 500 over the past 21 days. So 21 days, the standard deviation of daily returns for the S&P 500, so the range return, it's been 8.8. So below even the VIX level. And so realized volatility is also at historic lows, as is the VIX. So we know the VIX could, could be driven to these lows because you have all these institutions and other investors shorting volatility. So there's a great demand to short and sell volatility is keeping volatility low. But we've also seen that volatility, realized volatility is also very low. And because the economy appears to be doing well, and even though the Fed is raising interest rates, they're doing so at a very slow pace. And we've had other historical periods where volatility, both expected, implied, and realized has been low as the Fed has raised interest rates. On the homepage of Artemis Capital Management, the, the volatility hedge fund investment advisory firm run by Christopher Cole, right there, the title is Volatility is an Instrument of Truth. And then there's a really profound paragraph. It says, volatility as a concept is widely misunderstood. Volatility is not fear. Volatility is not the VIX index. Volatility is not a statistic or a standard deviation or any other number derived by abstract formula. Volatility is not different in markets than it is to life. And here he describes what it is. Regardless of how it is measured, volatility reflects the difference between the world as we imagine it to be and the world that actually exists. So what do we expect the world to be, imagine it, and what actually exists? I put it a different way when I talk about risk. Risk is more things can happen than will happen. And when what happens differs from consensus expectation, that results in volatility as realized outcomes can fall well outside the range of expected return. So volatility spikes when things happen that aren't expected. Or as he says, it reflects the difference between the world we imagine it to be and the world that actually exists. And when that gap between what we imagine the world to be and what is actually there widens, then that leads to higher volatility. But it's not always bad. Think about my plan A. After reading Talib, I, got, I start to think about, well, I wanted to retire in, in 10 years. And maybe I need to rethink that plan and have a plan B. But actually, I benefited from the volatility. So we had the financial crisis, and I learned so much about investing, but it wore me out. But our firm continued to do well. We, we, we thrived through that volatility. So I was able to leave and retire five years earlier than expectations. In 2012, I left. So I, I beat it by five years. That was also unexpected, but it was a surprise. I wouldn't call it a black swan. It wasn't something completely out of the norm, but it certainly was a positive surprise that came out of volatility. So that's what you need to know about volatility. It tends to cluster together. It clumps. Periods of low volatility are followed by other periods of low volatility. 
and volatility tends to spike when there's a regime change in terms of credit and when when it's more difficult for companies to access credit. You see that in widening spreads between corporate bonds, non-investment-grade corporate bonds, and government bonds. So that's that's a signal. You know that there's a large amount of institutions that are shorting and riding volatility. They're picking up nickels in front of the steamroller, and the, potentially that will lead to it, some type of crisis when volatility ultimately picks up. But during periods when the Federal Reserve is raising interest rates has often been periods of low volatility historically. We know that if you're going to go out and buy volatility, you have to look at the VIX future curve and understand how is volatility priced in the future. And even though volatility is low, implied volatility is low right now, actual realized volatility is also very low what we're seeing. And so there's a gap in terms of also historic lows. Some point it'll change. We will get to a regime change, and that's one way I invest. I'm always looking for regime changes that suggest we should be taking, be more conservative in our investing, and that's what we do on Money for the Rest of Us Plus. Everything I share with you in this episode has been for general education only. I've not considered your specific risk profile. I've not provided investment advice. Simply general education on money, investing in the economy. Have a great week.